series of sermons that I've been doing, and last week we talked about one of the ways that I've seen people decide that Christianity just could not be true. We talked about world religions, and people often ask that question of how could Christianity be true if there's other faiths, other religions? And uh, this week we're going to cover another difficult topic, probably the hardest one in the series, but it's an essential one. And the question that comes up and the, the thing that we'll be talking about today is that Oftentimes, you will hear people say, how could God exist? How could Christianity be real if there are horrible tragedies and human suffering? In words, something like that, they would say, how could I possibly believe in Jesus? How could I have faith in God when there's horrible tragedies like tsunamis or mass shootings or terrible diseases like cancer or any number of things, and they would say, if God's all-powerful, God's all-loving, then how do situations like this happen? Unfortunately, when moments like that happen, when tragedy strikes, when diagnosis has come in, or when people are dealing with hard times, one of the first reactions that I've seen happen is that people decide that God's not there for them. And, and I say it's so tragic because if they do that, they're at a place where the ultimate power, the greatest force in all the universe is no longer as available as he could be. That if they reject God, if they decide that he's not there for them or he couldn't be there for them or if he is there, then he doesn't care about them, uh, then they're all of a sudden they are no longer connected in the same way that they could be if they would just find a different way to look at things. And it's interesting that when you talk with people about tragic situations or, or hardship, that many times that they'll say, well, if that's true about God, then, then it's just wrong. It's just wrong. It's not fair. It's, it's wrong. And it's unjust. And what I, I think about in those times is this amazing saying that C.S. Lewis brought up. And if you don't know too much about him, um, he was somebody who went and served in the war, one of the great wars. He saw enormous human suffering on the battlefield. He saw the worst of humanity, the worst of humankind. And when he came back from the war, he was writing and thinking and praying. And, and one of the things he brought up, he said, you know, what is it that, that tells me that something is wrong? What is it that tells me that something is tragic and unfair? Because if you look at the life that we live and the world that we live in from just a, a practical standpoint, from a human standpoint, or even from a standpoint of evolution that we say the survival of the fittest, then there's really nothing that indicates that anything that happens in this life is unfair. Who are we to say that it's tragic or that it's wrong? And C.S. Lewis points out that if there's nothing that we inherently can say that that's the case, then there must be something greater at work within our lives and in our world. And his point was he's saying, if, if we can recognize human suffering and say that it is horrible, that it is tragic, that it's not fair, then there's something that's telling us that that's the case. And if it's not something that we can evidence in this world, then he points out and he says, it might be something greater at work in our world. And so in those moments, I, I just encourage you, and though the, the worst thing that I think you can do is to decide that God's not there for you or that God doesn't care, that's probably the worst thing. So, so what should you do? 
how, how can you deal with those, those tragic moments? And there's, there's lots of philosophical answers that we could give, but in my experience, you know, human suffering is not something that's philosophical. It's something that we feel deeply and that hurts us on the deepest levels. I don't have a good philosophical answer for many of the tragic things that I've seen happen in my lifetime. But when you think about your life and what you've witnessed, and uh, you may have your own stories, but to me, like, I can give you an example of my aunt that I dearly love, and she's a, a great Christian lady. She's just amazing to me in many ways, but most of her adult life, she suffered from rheumatoid arthritis that has crippled her hands and her movements to where simple things like brushing your teeth and brushing your hair become unbelievably complicated endeavors for her. And she's dealt with that for decades. And you and I could probably relate and share other stories as well. People that lost loved ones too soon, people that had to bury their own kids, people that suffered from horrible diseases, and on and on down the list we could go. And when we think about those things, the, the reality is that we could say that, um, you know, on a philosophical level, we could make some sense on it, but it's, it's always so, so much more than that. It's personal. It's something that strikes us on deep levels. Now, what I have found helpful to people that are going through situations like that or that are struggling with that is that there are a number of powerful stories within the Old Testament especially that speak to human suffering. Now, I don't know how it is for you, but I'm just going to make a very small example for you uh, when I think about suffering. I, I've been blessed with really good health, but occasionally I'll get the flu or I'll get like, you know, some kind of stomach problem. And I don't know how it is for you, but when that happens and I'm running a fever or something like that, I find that I confess just about anything I can think of to God, right? That when I'm running a high fever and I'm achy and I'm sore and I'm hurting, I start going through my mind and I start asking those questions of what did I do wrong? And for whatever reason, I begin to pray in King James English, right? <laughs> what is it, thou Lord, that I have eaten that has caused this, this dilemma? So, you know, it's like I get real, real confession with God and start talking, thinking about God. What did I do? You know, what, what mattress tag did I tear off, right? What, what horrible thing did I do to deserve this, you know? Or then I'll think, you know, how long is this going to go on? You know, it usually lasts maybe 24 hours, but to me, of course, it seems like an eternity because I just I don't do stick well. And when I think about those kinds of situations that we tend to think, you know, what did we do wrong? Or, or how long is this going to last? I think it's so powerful that when you, you read the Old Testament especially, and it's thousands and thousands of years old, that you can still find humans saying the same kinds of things. You have people like Job who lose everything possible, right? And he's calling out to God and he's saying, you know, what, what, what is all this about? And he never gets an answer. Instead, when God speaks, God asks a question and God says, where were you when I set the foundations of the earth? And then Job has some buddies that come over and initially they're great because they're there to support their friend, but then they open their mouth and all kinds of crazy comes out. Or you can turn over to the Psalms, and there's Psalms of David that, you know, ask those simple questions of how long is this suffering going to last? How long do I need to wait? Or how long are you going to let people who are wicked prosper while the righteous suffer? 
and all throughout the, the Bible, you, you find those powerful passages. And, and I think it is important when you're going through times like that. It is important to ask yourself the question of, is there something that I need to correct? Is there some place I need to quit eating? You know, <laughs> what, what do I need to do? But there's also more to it. And to, uh, to talk about that, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and open up to uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ that John proclaims. And I think in the bulletin I have all of chapter 11 for you, but we're not going to go through it all. You can relax. It's all right. And, um, but it is a beautiful story, and it's an account of Jesus and some of his closest friends. It's Jesus and Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And they're close friends of Jesus. And in this particular story, we find that Jesus is um, in another village from Martha and Lazarus and Mary. And yet he gets word that Lazarus is ill. And you would think that he would rush over and, and heal Lazarus, but he doesn't. Instead, he takes his time. And uh, as he's coming into town, Mary and Martha meet him. And Jesus says, you know, uh, they ask the question that, we've already asked today. So where were you? What, what's going on? If you were here, if you were present, if you really loved us, this would have never happened. And Jesus talks to them and he says, I am the resurrection. I am the life, which is profound. He's saying that when it's all said and done, I'm the one that gives life. I'm the one that makes the final judgment. I'm the one that has the final say. Such a unique statement. And when we get into uh, verse 33, it says, when Mary arrived where Jesus was, and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying also, he was deeply disturbed and troubled. He asked, where have you laid him? They, they replied, Lord, come and see. And Jesus began to cry. Other translations, and Jesus wept. And what's so beautiful about this passage to me is that Jesus doesn't wax philosophical. He doesn't have an existential answer to all the ontological problems that are going on. I'm still paying for my education. I like to use it from time to time, right? Instead, Jesus is deeply moved. And we believe as a Christian people that Jesus is God. And so what's happening here is God is deeply moved. God is deeply disturbed. God is troubled and his heart's broken for what has happened with Lazarus and the grieving people that are there. And it's so beautiful and so profound because this would have been unthinkable to the early Romans and the early Greeks who said the gods are far off, they don't care, in fact, they hate us. And yet when we hear about Jesus and Christ, we hear of somebody who is deeply moved, who is involved, who's not afraid of getting into difficult problems and is there present in their most difficult times. And Jesus weeps, and he's disturbed, and he's bothered by it all. And it's so powerful to think about that, that when we're struggling, when we're hurting, that that does get to God. That no tear that we cry ever goes unnoticed. Our names are written on his hand, and that he loves us so, so deeply. And going on in the story, it says, see how much he loved him. Now, it's visible. It's evident. It says, but some of them said he healed the eyes of the man from, who was blind. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was deeply disturbed again. 
When he came to the tomb, it was a cave and a stone covered the entrance. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, the smell will be awful. He's been dead for four days. King James, he stinketh much. <laughs> Jesus replied, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see God's glory? So they removed the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. I know you always hear me. I say this from the benefit of the crowd standing here so that they will believe that you sent me. Having said this, Jesus shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his feet bound, his hands tied, and his face covered with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, untie them and let them go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came with Mary and saw that Jesus did so saw what Jesus did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So this is a beautiful passage. It's a powerful one. I just want to spell out some of the things that are there for you. First and foremost, Lazarus does die. There's no way around it. And what I want to point out to you is that if you read other passages, like Romans 8, you know, Paul spells it out. He says, you know, we, we live in a broken world. But he says, you know, right now, all of creation is groaning. You know, the, the creation has a beginning and an end. And right now, it's, it's groaning. It's changing because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And Paul speaks about that. And he says, and that should give us hope. It should give us hope about what is going on in our world. He's saying that even though this story that we find about Lazarus is one that has an amazing ending of resurrection and that you and I, uh, when we lose a loved one, that's not our expectation immediately, but eventually, that is our hope. That at the every funeral that I do, I point out and say, but we will see these people again. We have hope in the resurrection. We have hope in the one that said, I am the resurrection and the life. And that when we're suffering, when we're hurting, that is something that we can always look forward to, always find hope in, to know that he will bring about the resurrection and that we will have eternal life with him. That should give us such great hope. The other piece of this story is that there are times where we don't always understand what God is doing. I mean, I joked with somebody after the last service, I said, you know, that I've got a list of things that I know I'm going to ask Jesus about when I get to heaven. I've got that list. And that we don't always understand exactly what God is doing in the moment. One of the most comforting psalms that we find about that is uh, Psalm 23. You probably know it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it's a beautiful psalm because it talks about us being sheep and God being our shepherd. And um, I grew up in Houston, in Lafayette, in the cities, in the burbs. Knew nothing about sheep. Uh, in fact, a couple years ago, I was really embarrassed because I did a sermon on the sheep and the goats. And the whole time, there was a picture of a goat, and I kept calling it a sheep. <laughs> and the people that knew it were like, oh, man. And so I really didn't know a whole lot. And so uh, every once in a while, when I do a sermon that mentions it, I'll do some research. And I came across a video of, um, of something I'd never heard of until I moved to East Texas. And had a little guy that pointed out to me what it was. He said, that's a dipping pond. And I said, what in the world is a dipping pond? And he said, well, you know, that's what you dip your, your sheep and your goat and your livestock in. I said, and caramel? What are you doing with them? What is this? 
And he said, no, 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 when they have parasites, when they have ticks, when they have uh, things that you're trying to get off of them, you put them in the dipping pool and you put in chemicals that kill off the parasites and the ticks and, and kind of coats them and stuff that keeps the, the, the animals away. I said, well, that's, that's interesting. He's, I said, well, how do you get them in there? That stuff's got to stink. He said, well, there's a chute. And so I looked it up on YouTube, and there's a video of, I think it was someplace like Australia or something like that, and they had this massive amount of sheep. And what they would do is that they would take the sheep up a ramp, and they would walk them up there, and then there's like this play school slide, right? And so the point was that the sheep would get to the top of the slide, and then the ones behind them would push them over. And they would slide down the chute into the dipping pond, right, into the chemicals that they needed. And I thought to myself, well, that's just horrible. I mean, these poor sheep wake up in the morning, go down a slide, their day is ruined, right? <laughs> now, some of the sheep are really impressive because not only do they hit the end of the chute and they get in the water, but they're able to keep their heads up, right, because they start to, to swim. And then I saw something that just was mind-blowing because there were shepherds there that were standing with this big, long staff that had look, looked like a plunger at the bottom and if any of the sheep managed to not fall into the pool and get completely submerged, the shepherd would take his staff and he would plunge the sheep under the water to make sure that it was covered completely. Now, obviously, they don't think the same way that we do, but I was thinking from a human standpoint, you wake up, it's a bad day already, you go into the chute, you think you've made it, you've fought, you've struggled, you've done your best, you turn your head, and there's your buddy, the shepherd, plunging you <laughs> under the water. Why? To get rid of the ticks and parasites in your life, right? And I always think of that now, every time I think about the psalm, or I think, what in the world is God doing? I think maybe this is one of those redemptive moments, like Psalm 23, he leadeth me beside still waters, he restoreth my soul, he dippeth me <laughs> in the pool. And that you and I, like Job and like so many other people, don't always understand what God is doing. But in Christ, we have the hope and the promise of the one who is at work in our world doing great and mighty things. So we have hope in the future. We have confidence that even in the midst of those tragedies or those terrible moments of our lives that God is still with us. And I just wanna name one last thing and that's that when we do go through those, those times, it can be so isolating. We can feel like we're on our own, or we can feel like somehow we're the only ones that have ever gone through anything like this. And the result of that is that we can become a people that are angry, cynical, or bitter, hateful. And that's not what God desires for us either. When we look at the passage that we found in the Bible about Jesus and the resurrection, many times if you ask the simple question of why did Jesus come into our world? Why, why did he die upon the cross? Many times people will say, well, so that he could do what God wanted him to and so that he could go back to eternity with God. You know, that's, that's kind of their conclusion. He wanted to get to heaven just like we want to get to heaven. But that's not good enough. The truth of the matter is that Jesus already had heaven. He had heaven with God, there with the Holy Spirit, perfect community, perfect love. Jesus was good. Jesus came into our world and he 
He died upon the cross. He suffered for us and for our salvation. He did all those things not so that he could gain heaven. He, he already had it. He didn't get mocked and betrayed and ridiculed so that he could gain eternal life or some prize or some reward in heaven. He did all that for you and I, for you. And if Jesus died on the cross, then we can have hope in the midst of our times of suffering. If he died upon the cross, then we can even find a way to forgive those people who may have caused our hardships and our sufferings. If he, if he died upon the cross, then that means we could also forgive ourselves. And if he died upon the cross, then that means he knows completely what we're going through as sheep, even if we don't. So take courage, take joy, take the hope of the resurrection with you even in those times of suffering, even when God doesn't make a whole lot of sense, know that he's with us, that he loves us, and he knows exactly what we're going through. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is to you that we lift up our hearts and our lives. We believe, Lord, but please help our unbelief. Lord, we lift up to you the fact that we do live in a world that is broken, that is filled with hardships and turmoil, it's also filled with a whole bunch of great things as well, Lord. And so we rejoice in you, that you have given us this time, this moment, this brief time in history to live in this world and to know you and to know the hope and the promise of the resurrection and the life that is to come. We lift up to you all those who are suffering and hurting. Help us not only to pray and to seek your guidance and your wisdom upon their lives, but to find ways in which we can be there for them, to lift them up and to encourage them and to not let them be isolated. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.